0: John's story. I didn't sleep all night. I just lay on my back, staring up into the blackness. And every every time I started to drift off, I heard again the ringing sound of iron, striking iron. I felt the horrible shudder of the ground under my feet as that cross was finally lifted to vertical and dropped into place. And I was awake again. Long before dawn this broke this morning, the others started arriving, one by one. I'd hear a quiet tap at the door, and I'd get up to ask who it was. I'd hear a gruff or impatient response, and then I'd open the door. Each one looked into my eyes at first, and then quickly looked away and slipped past me. Some of them dropped onto a floor, the floor. Some leaned against the wall. Some slumped into a chair at the table. One curled himself up in the corner. I hadn't asked them to come, but they all came. No one spoke (laughs) what was there to say. Everything was gone. He was gone. I guess they all just felt the need to be together. Peter was the last to arrive. He looked terrible. But he didn't look away. He stared at me and I stared back at him. And then he turned his head and he scanned the shadowy room, his gaze passing over each solitary figure. I opened my mouth to say, I, I don't know, something, and, and then I jumped as loud pounding suddenly shook the door beside me. I froze. My breath choked in my throat. Had they come to arrest us? And then I heard a voice, a woman's voice. I opened the door a crack and looked out. It was Mary. Her eyes were wide. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him, she said. I felt Peter's hand grip my arm. I looked at him, and and then we were outside, running. We ran together through the gray mist that was almost dawn, and my mind raced. Had Caiaphas stolen the body? Was it the Romans, or, or could it possibly be? I glanced at Peter running beside me, and then I sprinted ahead. As I raced through the streets, I thought of all the things he'd said to us. He told us who he was and why he had come. I I could hear his voice in my head. I I could see his eyes as he looked down on me from the cross, as he'd put his mother into my care. Then we were there. It was true. The tomb was standing open. The stone was gone. I stopped short at the jagged doorway and I leaned my hands on my knees. I I dropped my head and gulped for air. And then a shaft of sunlight fell across the opening of the tomb. I raised my head and looked inside. It was empty. I dropped onto my haunches and stared. The burial clothes were in two neat piles on the slab. There was no body. I felt a gust of air and and Peter burst past me. He stopped inside the cave and he looked at the empty slab. Then he turned his head and looked at me. I stood and followed him inside. It was all true. Everything he said to us was true. I, I must have said it out loud because Peter turned to me fully and said, I thought you of all people knew that. Yes, I did. I knew that I knew that he was the Messiah I knew that he was the son of God I knew but this morning standing with Peter inside that cold dank tomb I believed
1: We tend to take a lot of things for granted. We take for granted that the lights are going to come on when we flip the switch. And we're always surprised when they don't. We take for granted that the car is going to start when we turn the ignition. And we're always surprised and dismayed when it doesn't. We take for granted that when we get out of bed, there's going to be air to breathe. We take for granted that every morning the sun will come up and the gravity will hold things in place. And we would be pretty surprised if those things didn't happen. We are very good at taking things for granted. But we're not alone. The disciples take a lot for granted as well. Not the least of which is the death of Jesus. The disciples are convinced that when Jesus dies, he dies just like everyone else. And what happens after his death is going to be just like everyone else's death. That's why they don't pitch tents at the tomb. If they really believe that Jesus' death was going to be anything different than anybody else's death, I think they'd have spent the night at the tomb. But they don't. Jesus is dead. It's over. Which is what makes Sunday morning so amazing. John arrives at the tomb first. Either because he's in better shape than Peter, or maybe he's more athletic than Peter, we don't know. But John gets there first, and that seems to be important because John tells us that little detail. When you think of all the details, he doesn't tell us. You know? Something, I don't know if he's sneaking in something, you know? Peter's a little out of shape, I beat him. Anyway, he gets there first. He looks down, but he doesn't go in. I don't know why he doesn't go in, but he doesn't. And all of a sudden, Peter, catching up with him, rushes past him. Impetuous, always impetuous Peter, is not going to wait outside the tomb. He's going in. We don't know why John hangs back at first. We don't know what causes him to finally go in. But I think it has something to do with Peter. And not because of something Peter says, but because of Peter's silence. Now, we get... Glimpses of Peter when we read this New Testament, but we don't know a lot. But one thing we do know is that Peter loves to talk. When everyone else is silent, Peter's speaking. When everybody else has enough sense to keep their mouth shut, Peter's talking. And yet, here's John waiting outside the tomb, waiting, waiting, listening, Nothing. Silence. And after a while, John can't take it anymore. He goes in, and you can almost imagine that scene as he looks at Peter, and the look asks Peter, What's going on? And I think Peter probably just points at the grave clothes. It's not just the empty tomb that catches John's attention, it's the grave clothes. Something about those strips of linen who, that are wrapped around a body at death that are lying exactly the way they were when they were wrapped around Jesus. Something about that detail is important because, again, John gives it to us. Now, you ponder that for a moment, and I think that detail is important because if someone had stolen Jesus' body, they wouldn't have taken time to unwrap him first. They grab him and run. And even if for some reason they had decided to unwrap him. Why would they wrap the cloths right back up again and get them exactly the way they were? I'm not even sure that's possible. I'm not even sure it's possible to wrap cloths like that. Like they would have been around a body when you have no body. I know we live in the digital age, but many of you have have used paper maps. Maps. And I suspect if you've ever used a paper map, you have gone through the agony of trying to refold it the way it came. You know that feeling? You can never get it right. It never, it never folds back right. There are people in factories, I'm sure, at Rand McNally that are laughing every day about people trying to refold those maps. Or you think about, you know, you, you buy a, a vacuum cleaner... And it comes in pieces in a box and you put it together and then you realize this isn't what you wanted. Try to put that back in the box exactly the way it was so the lid closes right. You you cannot do it. How much more impossible to try to wrap grave clothes exactly the way they were. Verse 8 tells us, that seeing all of this, somehow, some way, John looks at those grave clothes, takes in the empty tomb. He sees it and he believes. He believes that Jesus is alive. Now, it's clear that John doesn't understand all the implications of what it means that Jesus is alive. Verse 9 tells us that much. But even though he doesn't fully understand, he understands enough. Jesus was dead. He was buried. John knows he was a witness. He saw the whole thing. And now Jesus is alive. And when you accept that premise, nothing can ever be the same again. This historic event is the center, the apex of what it means to be Christian. To what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Without resurrection, the incarnation and the crucifixion are empty. Without resurrection, the ascension is impossible. And the second coming is absurd. And eternal life is nothing but a pipe dream. Without resurrection, there is no such thing as Christianity. Martin Luther once said, the gospel does not explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains why we have the gospels. Without the resurrection, we have no foundation for our faith. Actually, we have no faith. It's interesting to me that as you read through John's account and as you read through The the New Testament. The primary response to resurrection is not knowing, it's believing. Now, knowledge is important. We need to know and understand as much as we can. Ignorance is not a spiritual gift. But John is the embodiment of people who believe, even though they don't understand. All the implications of what Jesus has done and of where this believing is going to lead them. We see here in John just simple, ready faith like a child. The kind of faith that Jesus adores. Something big happened here. And the only explanation is that God did it. And the Jewish, leader, Jewish religious leaders, they know all kinds of things. They know the scriptures. They know the law. But they don't believe. It really doesn't matter what they know. It doesn't affect how they live. And because they know but don't believe, they reject God. The word believe is so significant to John's gospel, more so than all the other gospels combined. The word believe is used 11 times in Matthew's gospel, 14 times in Mark's gospel, 9 times in Luke's gospel, and 98 times in John's gospel. It's not a surprise that John tells us that when he looks at the grave clothes, when he takes in the empty tomb, when he sees... He believes. And the question that confronts us continually is, do we? Belief has that sense of certainty, dependability, trustworthiness in people. It's the idea of believing that someone is faithful, that someone can be trusted and relied on. It's more than just knowing that something is true with your mind. But it means that you you believe so fully that you are willing to trust or depend or rely upon that truth with your life. If you believe in someone, you trust them. You rely on them. You count on them. It's like a parent trying to teach their child to swim. And you're standing in the water and they're standing on the edge of the pool and you say, come on, jump, I'll catch you. How do you know that they really believe that you're telling them the truth? If they jump. It's only when they jump that you know they believe you, they trust you. Believing the resurrection means more than just, I believe it happened. But it's buying into it in such a way that all of our life is shaped and driven and motivated by the resurrection. We don't just believe with our minds that Jesus was dead and is now alive. We live in such a way that the resurrection impinges on everything about our lives. Every decision, every thought, every word, every attitude, every relationship. Everything we do with our money and our possessions. Everything we do with how we spend our time. Everything about our worldview. Everything to do with everything. Everything we understand about God and life and everything we don't understand about God and life is motivated and driven by the resurrection. To believe in the risen Christ is to acknowledge that if God can raise Christ from death to life, then God really is in control of all things. That his power is unlimited, that he can do anything and everything. In one sense, Jesus really doesn't do anything new when he is raised to life from death. He is simply revealing the power of God for his people through the centuries. Because God has always had power over death. God has always been the living God. He has always been, the un, been unstoppable in carrying out every single one of his purposes. Now, you might be wondering why on Easter morning we read the creation story. It might seem out of place to you. I think we we read it because I believe that resurrection takes us back to the very first thing we know about God. That he is the creator. And we tend to get, when we talk about creation, we tend to get kind of worked up about how God created. How many days? How many years? What kind of way did this happen? And the truth is, we don't know the answers to those questions. We don't know the answers to the how questions. For some reason, God hasn't given us a lot of those details. But God, however, has made it very, very clear that it all starts with him. He's the creator. So if you can see it, God created it. If you can stand on it, God created it. If you can study it, God made it. God alone is the maker of heaven and earth, and that is so vital to our belief, not only about God, but everything we believe that we celebrate this day. You see, our dilemma is that it appears from the events of Friday that the created has now become more powerful than the creator. And that's a common idea in our corrupted, broken worlds. In Mary Shelley's classic tale, Frankenstein, it's a a test of science as Dr. Frankenstein creates this hideous monster who becomes violent and threatening. And eventually, the monster convinces the doctor to create a female companion for him. But when the doctor begins to ponder what this might mean, the work he has started, he destroys. And the monster is furious and he vows revenge against Dr. Frankenstein on his wedding night. And he exacts that revenge By killing the doctor's wife. And though the monster is Victor Frankenstein's creation, the doctor now realizes how helpless he is to prevent the monster from ruining his life and the lives of others. The creator can no longer control the created. And it's often how things appear in this world of evil and pain and violence and greed and chaos. H.G. Wells once said, The world is like a great stage production, produced and managed by God. And as the curtain rises, the set is perfect. It's a beautiful thing to look at. The characters are resplendent. And everything goes well until the leading man steps on the hem of the leading lady's gown. And it causes her to trip over a chair, which knocks over a lamp, pushes over a table into the wall, knocks over the scenery, and it brings everything down on the heads of the actors. And all the while, God is behind the scenes, running around, shouting orders, pulling strings, trying desperately to rescue, to restore order from chaos, but God is unable to do so. And according to Wells and to many others, It's because God is a very tiny, small, limited God. And as the events of Friday come to their conclusion, that's certainly what it looks like. If this is true, then the way in which most people view the world is true. Might equals right. The one with the most toys wins. The biggest house, the fastest car, the largest corner office is success. The biggest army gets what it wants. The most educated, and the most gifted are the most valued. Where you're born determines your worth and your value. The most vulnerable basically exists to be used. If the world's view of God is true, if Friday and the cross are indeed what it appears to be on that day, then I guess people are right. Money makes the rules. Power dictates. Intimidation works. The threat of death will continually stop us and silence us and change us. Because death has power over us that nothing else can match. Friday's message is pretty clear. Creation is greater, stronger than its creator. And this world will never be any different than it is. There will never truly be justice or hope or peace or life. Death, suffering, tragedy, disaster, injustice, sin, evil that's all we get. And we just have to figure out a way to learn to live with it. But when John sees those grave clothes, he knows. He knows that the assumptions they made on Friday are not true. Death is not this great threat anymore. Power is not in the hands of the ones with the most weapons. Money isn't what turns the world. Creation is not stronger than its creator. And John sees and he believes. Do we? You know, we've heard so much about the resurrection that I would suspect that many of us are almost inoculated from the power of the resurrection. When I get together with with other pastors and the conversation turns to Easter, a couple of things almost always come up. One is we love this time and we love all of the symbols and all the ways in which we celebrate Easter. But the other thing that almost always comes up is a discussion about how in the world can we say something in a new and fresh way that people have heard dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. The more I've pondered that, I'm pretty sure that that is predominantly a western phenomenon. I don't think there is this sense of inoculation, this temptation to mundaneness in places like North Korea or Somalia or Niger. In those places the undisturbed grave clothes, that empty tomb are it's the lifeblood of their existence. Because they live in a world in which everything about life screams at them that the creation and its creatures possess all the power. And to fight against the power of creation is useless or worse. And there's something about being confronted with the resurrection in the midst of difficulty and struggle that makes the reality of the living Christ even more meaningful and desired and evident. I'm not sure it's a coincidence that verse 1 begins, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Throughout the gospel, John has been playing with that motif of light and darkness. And the darkness isn't just an awareness that the, the, high, the sun hasn't risen yet. It's symbolic of Mary's spirit as she makes her way to the tomb. There's no darker day for the followers of Jesus than Friday and Saturday and Sunday before dawn. The one they believe sent from God has been vanquished, defeated, snuffed out. Whatever light might have been in him is overwhelmed by evil's night. And then comes the light. And light never feels brighter. And when it shines in the midst of darkness. Joseph San was one of the heroes of the faith during the communist reign in Romania. He told a story about facing the secret police during an investigation. They were trying to intimidate him and to destroy him. After a particularly grueling session of persecution and intimidation... He went back to his cell and he fell on his face in desperation and he said, God, they are destroying me. I don't think I can take this anymore. And he said, it was as though I heard God saying to me, Joseph, get up. Who are the secret police compared to the one who sits on the throne of the universe? Who are the secret police in comparison to the one who was dead and is now alive? And he said, I got up and I returned to the interrogation with a new sense of fear. But it wasn't fear of my persecutors. It was a fear, it's a reverence for a holy fear of God himself. One day the chief interrogator said to him, Joseph, you are so stupid. You, are, you will never learn. I guess the only thing we can do is to kill you. And Joseph said, I understand, sir. I understand that's your ultimate weapon, but when all else has failed, you can kill me. But, sir, when you use your ultimate weapon, then I will be able to use my ultimate weapon. He mockingly said to him, what's your ultimate weapon? He said, we see your ultimate weapon is to kill me. My ultimate weapon is to die. And when I die, I will be better off than I was before. And every sermon I have ever preached will be sprinkled with my blood and with the life of Jesus Christ. How do you get to the place where you live with that kind of freedom? It's when you recognize that the one who holds you in the palm of his hand is greater than any force in this world. When you begin to see that however great the power of this created world that has been corrupted by sin, however great its power might be, no matter what threats it poses against us, the creator is fully and completely in control. And we know that's true. Because the tomb is empty. Because the grave clothes were still there, just as they were. Despite all that's happening in our world, despite all that seems wrong with this world, despite everything that seems out of place and out of control, despite the difficulties that are pressing in upon us, despite how things appear to be so often. Because Christ is risen, we can live with hope and joy. We continue to work for good and for justice. We commit ourselves to love and truth. We don't have to despair. Because Jesus, who was dead, is alive forevermore. And He is with us. And the one who created us. Rules all. John went into that tomb. He saw, he believed. Do we? Not just with our minds, but how we live. Do we believe that Jesus? Is alive. Holy Father. Give us grace. To see you. To see that empty tomb. To see those empty grave clothes. And to believe. And let our belief. Change us how we see the world, how we see you, how we see each other, how we live our lives. We pray this in the power of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen.